Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is David McGuire. And I am Eric Brickmont. And I am Brian Moriarty. We're sorry to interrupt your podcast this evening, but we come to you with a very important message. Are you tired of hearing the squeaking of our chairs? Are you tired of hearing a distant echo in the background? Are you tired of hearing my lips smack the moment before I talk? I know I am. But you know how we can fix that? We need help from you. You see, Rome was not built in a day. It was built over many months, and also with lots of money. And lots of marble. We don't actually need the marble. No, we don't need it. It'd be nice, but... Okay, let's just stick to things that we actually need. Okay, sorry. Okay, thank you. Anyways, if you feel like you want to help us with our squeaking chairs or massive echo and Brian's incessant lip smacking, please go to www.nerdonomy.com. Click on Donate, where your money will go to helping our nerd cave thrive and helping Brian get over his speech impediment. And to go to our need for lots and lots of Hot Pockets. We must have the Hot Pockets. Last time on Nerds on History, it came to a boiling point in the nerd cave when discussing the merits of science fiction. Science fiction is always dealing with the ethics of science. Brian, you couldn't be more wrong. Again, it's about the morals and the dream of becoming more than who you are. Well, maybe you can dream your way into being right because you're wrong. You guys couldn't be even more further from the truth. This is science fiction. It has to do with technology in the future, propelling ahead. No, it is obvious that this contest cannot be won by our knowledge of the genre, but by our skills with nerd weapons. Oh, you got that right. <laughs> oh, how quaint. A lightsaber. A lightsaber to a phaser party. Ha <laughs> ha, you fools! Sonic screwdrivers beat both. Well, wait, no, hey, shh. Ah, crap. <laughs> oh, sh. By the way, uh, who wrote The Hunchback of Notre Dame? Also Victor Hugo. See, that's yeah. what I thought, because in the Disney movie, they have the two gargoyles named Victor and, and Hugo. Hugo. Yeah, that's exactly where it came from. Yep. Clever. Clever so girl. maybe we should just talk a little bit about the elephant in the room at the moment, then. Vern and Wells. Well, I'm glad you did, because if you didn't, I was going to. Yeah. And I'm going to just put in the ring, Burroughs. We definitely have to talk but about Burroughs. Burroughs doesn't come till the early 20th century. You deal okay. with... With hang on, all right, all right. We're all right. I know, I know, I know. Verne is actually the big one. He he's the first adventure novelist where you really start to see this imagery of future and technology mid eight uh, mid nineteenth century and because, romance. Really, there, there's a huge there's a strong romanticism element. to it. Yeah. yeah, and we mean the romantic not in the sense of love stories, rather, right. but in the sense that you view the world as you wish it could be. Right. You imagine yourself as a character or joining the characters because yeah. it's it's that engrossing of an adventure and. In a way, in a, with the exception of dystopian science fiction, you, you really science fiction is a very romantic idea, right? And you're talking about the, the limitless power of imagination. Right? Yeah, and, and to be honest, I think it really starts with Wells when we start getting into an idea of a dystopian future. Because we, for for me, 
I don't really notice it until War of the Worlds, personally. Well, Vern, okay, let's, let's, let's really show the, the true difference okay. between these two, because Vern was all about the adventure yeah. and that romantic element, whereas Wells was a lot about the social commentary, the thought-provoking, the uh, pulling parallels from current society and using science fiction as kind of a tool for teaching whereas Vern was more of using science fiction yeah. as a tool to expand your imagination. The Wellsian yeah. model of science fiction is what a lot of uh, more the serious science fiction novels, and I don't mean serious in the sense that they're taking any more credibly, but the, the more, more darkly yeah. toned yeah. are very Wellsian in their philosophy, whereas I would say Star Wars is much more of like a Vern type. Right. It's oh, little, yes, absolutely. It's much more adventure. I, I completely agree with you on that point. Roddenberry is kind of in between, I think, um, when it comes to... Uh, Star Trek. Well, yes, actually, you know what? No, that is pretty valid. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I agree with that. Yeah. Uh, you see, we can come to middle ground, guys. We've, we've, we've come full <laughs> Whereas circle. Whereas J.J. Abrams is 100% Vern. Don't you mention his name here. We'll talk about him later. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wasn't that me supposed to be me saying that? Yeah, that's... Uh, uh, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> wait Brian. What, what are you talking about? You didn't say that? No. Eric, I think you just spectrally possessed me for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> you wanted to surprise us, didn't you, Brian? I mean, Eric. <laughs> We have melted minds. <laughs> That's a frightening thought. Yeah. So. <laughs> hey. Well, yeah, it's true. Yeah. He's <laughs> like, hey, I resemble that remark. Uh, <laughs> okay. So we first see this with Jules Verne in 1864 with Journey to the Center of the Earth. Not to be confused uh, with the Brendan Fraser movie or the sequel, which with was spiritually the Rock. very loosely adapted from the same so concept. So loosely but, to the point where uh, spiritually, as if you're referring to an exorcism. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, that movie is so loosely based off of that book that you wonder why they even called it Journey to the Center of the Earth in three D. And it had the most obvious, most painful 3d to watch particularly ending oh, yeah. credits where literally like sticks of dynamite and rocks and things are just flying at you oh my god in the credits because we had a little leftover in the budget because we didn't spend enough writing the script <laughs> <laughs> we're fleshing out these things called characters so tell me have you guys read jules verne's journey to the center of the earth yes yes so please enlighten our audience who may not have been read on it what what's the premise of the story the idea is that we go on this uh this trek with this incredible burrowing machine that's capable of plunging into the very center of the earth and in doing so they find this whole other civilization if you will this whole other this whole other realm this whole other you, world you could technically call it a subspecies yeah a subterranean uh, earth yeah it, it's almost kind of like the concept of the dyson sphere uh in science fiction right are you guys familiar with the dyson sphere Enlighten me. That's the thing that they use on the vacuum cleaners, right? So, pivot. <laughs> so that it does not lose suction. It has the proper amount of suction. Or um, <laughs> the... <laughs> I thought that was clever. That was well done. Well done. The, the Dyson sphere, not the Dyson ball, uh, is a theoretical, a scientifically theoretical idea that an alien civilization that was advanced enough could build a sphere around a star. A sphere so massive, so large, that it could then harness the power of that star to power an entire civilization. And that the inhabitants of this sphere would actually live on its interior. And they would build more than enough living space than they would ever have of... So, in, so just so that way my brain is better understanding this, uh, you're saying that on the external side of the sphere there is nothing. Yep. Everything is building inward towards the center of the sphere. Not exactly. Imagine it like a like a tennis ball. 
If okay. you cut a tennis ball in half, yeah. you have this large chasm on the inside. That's right. Right? On the interior of that tennis ball is where you would live, and yeah. within that chasm would be a star. Oh, 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 oh. So okay. you're literally just building a a ball gigantic An enormous. entity, a spherical entity. Yeah. And I, I kind huh. of imagine Jules Verne's uh, journey to the center of the earth in a similar fashion. Yeah. You know, there's this whole other civilization and, and world, if you will, on the inside of our planet. I just made a, a, another movie reference connection. Ice Age 3 is a total, like, love letter to Journey to the oh. Center of the Earth. Oh, absolutely it is. Huh. And, and it have... has Simon Pegg, too, so win-win. <laughs> yeah, and you have everything complete with dinosaurs and, you know, geysers and huge... Uh, Waterfalls yeah. and lava pits. tropical and Earthquakes. Yeah, yeah, it's all trapped underneath. And so many have tried to really capture what Verne was trying to write. And I don't think in terms of film... Anyone has ever really done it justice. There's a lot of movies that pay homages to it, but there's nothing that's really, truly an adaptation. Yeah, and I would love to see a multi-film series really try to tackle it in the truest (laughs) Vernian sense. Oh, God, I hate to say this, but the closest that we've gotten to is Journey to the Center of the Earth in 3D and Journey 2. What was the subtitle for that? Journey 2. I never saw it. I never even bothered with it. Oh, my God. It was... There's there are certain levels of hell for people who write sh- stuff that bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, they say that plagiarism and unoriginality is the highest form, the highest sin. And in the center, you're there with Brutus Cassius and uh, <laughs> what was the other dude's name? Him. Uh, while Satan is not, you know, eating your intestines. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Oh god. That's well. That's Dante's Inferno. But, yeah, okay, but, yeah. but I think you can draw a parallel. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Absolutely. By the way, uh, it's called. Journey to the Mysterious Island. Oh, wait, that had the rock on it. Yes, it, yeah, that's it? the one that had it the rock. Indeed. Yeah. Oh, thank and God. And Josh Hutcherson. Uh, <laughs> Kevin's I am not pleased face is hilarious. Uh, <laughs> it is uh, truly hilarious. Okay. So It could be a meme. <laughs> Journey to the Southern Earth, I think, in my brief synopsis of it, just captures that excitement and fun and adventure that Vern is really all about. Yeah. I feel like 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea does that as well, but in a very different way. Oh, absolutely. Um, now, unfortunately, I hate to mention this, but I never got to read 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. My only reference to that is, of course, of the classic Disney film. Okay, which, which is actually, it's not, you know, it's not bad. Yeah, no, not at all. <laughs> I in have terms a of, copy of the actual book if you want to borrow it. I consider it done. Yeah. I got to say, though, it seemed more in terms of tone. Mm-hmm. Journey to the Center of the Earth is more of a sweeping adventure, whereas uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea seems more of like a cat-and-mouse bait-and-switch type of story. I think it has more elements of kind of a suspense-type thrill. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would agree with that as well, yeah. And I that's what I kind of like about it, is that it teases you. So I, I see it as really pushing this boundary of this of this frontier that has not been explored in reality we we know more about the universe outside of our atmosphere than we do about the world that under we, the ocean yeah exactly we really do and there's so much that you can do with it and i really wish more science fiction would capture in a better way um what Vern was trying to talk about because i remember watching sequest mm-hmm. uh back in the day do you guys remember sequest i do vaguely yes and I thought it was so cool because it was this very futuristic take on 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, essentially, uh, but as a TV series with all sorts of different stories and ideas and what okay. have you. And I thought it was so cool as a kid. Watching it now, I realized that it 
had some really bad writing. But <laughs> there were moments when it was really great. And I wish that somebody would bring that back and do that again because there's so much cool stuff that you could do under the ocean, even though I hate boats. You just that's have to throw right. that out there. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and watching programs like that sometimes make, makes me nervous. But interestingly enough, I'm okay with watching stuff under the water. It's things on the water. So Jaws is a veritable nightmare of a movie for you? Not really. I, I actually kind of enjoy Jaws, and a lot of it does take place on land. So I'm okay with that. But but like the almost the entire third act is on the water. But that's that's moving off topic. I think one of the most fascinating parts about 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea is that, I mean, as far as I'm aware, Eric, you probably have, you know, a dozen references in mind. But for me, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea was the first actual reference to a submarine that really you don't get to experience. Uh, nobody really uh, goes into it, not calling it a submarine, but a submersible object that can travel through the ocean, Well, has the weapons on board and viewing docks honestly, and things like that. that's not exactly the case. Submarines had been imagined well before that. And in fact, been in practice, built. too. Yeah. Really? But deep sea submarines, yeah, on the other hand, yeah. was a totally scientifically fictitious thing because the Civil War... Was right. using submarines. Even the American Naval they were Combat completely War. submergible. They were half above the water, half underneath. I'm talking about completely submerged. Be that as it may, the the concept was definitely around before that. But but the way that Wells, excuse me, Vern worked with it, is definitely unique. And yeah, it's definitely absolutely. one of the first times we see anything like that. So no, I, I agree with you. I'm in just that, saying in that respect. In yes. that respect, I'm just saying that submersibles had been around in function even in the American Revolutionary War, predating even. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. They weren't successful. The turtle was a complete total flop, but that's okay. (laughs) That's okay. So let's talk a little bit about Wells then. Because Wells, even though I I myself probably align a little bit more with Vern's sense of adventure when I like my sci-fi, I still find that some of my favorite examples are with Wells. Yeah. From what I remember reading with The Time Machine, I think that's the most romantic in terms of a sweeping science fiction story that Wells ever got to. It certainly seemed that way, you know, listening to the conversation that we're having now and thinking back on that. Maybe. I mean, I can see that. Well, the most romantic in his it, Oh, in oh his works. Okay, his sure, works, absolutely. Yeah. What I love about Wells, though, is that he definitely takes the science of the time, and he takes the time to explain his science. You know, he's oh, actually... That's right, yeah. He's definitely using the world's science as it was known at the time things you know concepts like evolution and things like that and applying it to science fiction and then he he goes in i think i mean one could argue that the Vern goes into more of the mechanics of how his stuff works but i think wells really makes his science relative to the entire story if that makes sense his science fiction is more that key element it's not just what propels people on their adventure it's really what makes the mechanics of the story kind of work like the time machine itself right he doesn't go into great detail about how the time machine works, whereas Vern might have been more like, well, this piston turned that, and this, you know, this turned that you know, yeah. cod, and that turned yeah. this and that, that. Whereas he is, where that time machine, though, is so symbolic and so central and so key to making sure the story moves along. You know what I find really ironic? Um, again, me being the giant movie person that I am, every work that I've seen that's based on Vern. It's the complete opposite. Completely 100% adventurous, non-mechanical thinking. Whereas with every H.G. Wells-inspired movie, totally goes into the nuts and bolts of how these things work in this universe. I find that like really, really odd. That of both categories, like you had described, Vern would be the more technical, Wells would be the more scientific in nature. Whereas the movies, it, it's like the complete opposite. 
I agree with that, yeah. Yeah. It's really it's it's interesting why they would take that turn just as a conversation point. <laughs> I also have to say I read this really interesting book and I I have it somewhere in my collection. I want to say it was like Chronicles of War of the Worlds or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it was written obviously, you know, almost 100 years after you know, uh, Wells wrote his War of the Worlds, but it was such a cool take because it it looked at the War of the Worlds from different perspectives elsewhere out in the world. Interesting. So, yeah, so it took the it took the same plot points, it took everything that happened in, in War of the Worlds, but put it through the perspective of different historical figures, Ooh. including Teddy Roosevelt, uh, who was a freaking badass. <laughs> he like shoots one of the aliens in the head with a shotgun. It's actually pretty cool. Yeah, of yeah. course, he would be. He's a rough rider after all. Yeah. Um, by the way, Orson Welles, H.G. Wells. Any relation? No relation. Nope. You know, pure Wells, coincidence. Pure coincidence. And speaking of Orson Welles, I think his take on War of the Worlds was obviously the most famous because he yeah turning it into a radio drama and creating the whole fourth wall, breaking it by cutting into it like a radio announcement. Um, you know, we want to talk about the historical ramifications of that. He scared the crap out of a lot of people, and he oh, had to go on the air and publicly apologize. Huge yeah. panic was caused. Yeah. And it just shows the power of some of these stories. And if you're not careful, you're going to throw in, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and really scare some people. And it's funny how this even happens today. Uh, I think, I don't remember what episode it was, but we talked a little bit about that mermaid documentary. I think we did. Maybe we yeah, did. Yeah, we did, we did on yeah, the evolution episode. Okay, yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen this, Kevin. It's this documentary, a mockumentary, excuse me, all about mermaids. And it explores it from, like, the most scientific way possible, like, that one of our ancient ancestors, uh, precursor to Homo sapiens, instead of you know evolving, evolving on one, land, yeah. started hanging out more on the coast, huh. <laughs> and then eventually dropped off the hair because it was more uh, you know hydrodynamic, hydrodynamic, hydrodynamic. Yeah, that's right. Uh, to be in the water that way, and then eventually just kind of stayed in the water, and then eventually became a mermaid. That's hilarious. I- I'm gonna have to look that up then. Absolutely. And they had all these like actors who were playing somewhat plausibly sounding scientists until you really started listening and you're like, oh my God, I can't believe they're going on with this for two hours. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, but the, people believed it was real. The thing I find fascinating about the War of the Worlds is because that story has been retold God knows how many times because basically it was the first alien invasion story. And, you know, if you look yeah. at... From Mars. I mean, we, we talked about this in the in the sci-fi episode way back in uh, October for Nerds on Film, but I'm going to bring it up again. Independence Day is essentially War of the Worlds retold. If you look at the 1950s version of War of the Worlds... Mm-hmm. And the 1996 film Independence Day, mm-hmm. ridiculously close parallels in plot and in character as well. I, I would agree with that up to a certain point. Yeah. I feel like I don't the, think it necessarily I, is representative I, of Wells' true original story, but I'm just saying. I would say it, it draws <laughs> the heaviest influence possible without ripping it off. Yeah. That's um, what I would say about Independence okay. Day. Because, yes, there is that a- alien invasion element, and there is like that whole all happening at once type of moment in War of the Worlds and Independence Day, but the motivations of the aliens is not really the same. They're just killing... In War of the Worlds, they're taking the planet over. They're terraforming. They're terraforming, exactly. In Independence Day, they are wiping everything out just for the sake of wiping everything out. Well, that's not entirely true. We well, don't no, know they that. Said they, they said... Remember when... Peace, Hang on a second. we don't want peace. <gasps> Die. Yes, I understand um, that. But Bill Pullman also said they behave like locusts. They go from planet to planet, pulling its resources. And oh, then, yeah. That one booyah. throwaway line. That one throwaway line. That's all it takes. <laughs> That's all it takes. Yeah. You just got 
slap with logic. Uh, <laughs> all right, all right. I will concede to that bitch slapping. So now that we've really established some of the greatest literary influences to the sci-fi genre, I feel like it's definitely time that we move into what we recognize as being the the postmodern sci-fi, right? So the movies really, I think, elevated sci-fi to a whole to new a point. availability. I would, say, I would yeah. say everything from 1950s, 60s forward. Um, to, to, ma- to match the same parallel with postmodern art would be the same thing as postmodern science fiction. Ooh, God, you have one glaring omission with that logic, though. What? Metropolis. Well, Metropolis, I would consider, is very much modern because it would uses really? every- yes, because it uses lots of expressionism and uses a lot of Art Deco in its design, which is a one of the trademarks of modern art. Well, let's pause for a second okay. because we have talked about this movie before, back when you, Sarah, and I went over. The uh, envisionings of the future. Indeed. Yes. And since that has happened, I had challenged both you and Sarah to watch the movie. Yes. Has that happened? I tried. Okay, fair enough. I mean, I gave my good effort. I did not... What I thought I would do was after one night after work, I thought, oh, okay, I'll just put it on. That was a bad idea because... Oh, you can't watch that while you're sleep deprived? No, no, no. I was very tired the day and i think that i can appreciate the visuals right away because it is a masterpiece of visuals considering oh undoubtedly the uh, the time frame and the redone score is beautiful really nice yeah. what i take issue with is the lack of editing <laughs> because some of these shots are uh, coming from a more modern mindset from from film editing some of these shots are way longer than than, than they need to be to get the point across and now, well, I, I have a counter argument for yes. that. And before I do that, uh, Kevin, have you seen the movie? <sighs> okay. I have, I have, but I was very, very drunk. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> so technically, no, I haven't seen it. I mean, essentially, the movie, and I won't go into great detail about it because we did talk about it a lot in the other episode. But just it, give it, us like a tw- one-minute synopsis for the people who did maybe didn't hear that episode. It's essentially about this mindless worker class that is very drone-like uh, in their actions and who they are as a society. Yeah, and one man from the upper class falls in love with a woman from the lower class. Right, and it's oh, a, so Romeo and Juliet a little bit, a little bit. A little yeah, bit? there's kind bit, of a love story. But then story. she dies, and then he tries to rebuild her as a robot, as a robot, very yeah. Frankensteinian. Right, there's definitely a lot of different influence going on here. Yeah. But for me, the slow-paced beginning of the movie, I think, mirrors the mindset of the time perfectly. Yeah. And as the movie goes on, it starts to pick up as, you know, our characters also pick up, if you will, as they discover what it is to be alive and be in love and be away from the monotony and droneness of their society. And then it takes this really dramatic turn. And I feel like it definitely does pick up. It's a long movie. And when you're dealing with a lack of dialogue and your score is really what is kind of motivating you and driving you and in, in from one scene to the next, depending on how somber or light or upbeat and exciting the music might be, your mood kind of goes along with that. Mm-hmm. So, and that can be kind of a dangerous trap mm-hmm. because you're not, you know, fully awake, right? So you're you're kind of starting to relax, and if the music is relaxing you, you could easily kind of drift off. I, yeah. I have resigned myself to saying I need to see it in a theater. So I'm <sighs> hoping I'm hoping the Stanford Theater, who is one of our nearby theaters in Palo Alto, when they do a showing of it again to go catch it because that just needs to happen. It's happened before, and yeah. it's been done with live music. Which is just extraordinary. Nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so just well, I guess, I, I don't know, would you say choreographed? 
uh, how, how do you do that? You, what is the term? You just well composed, to be honest. Just well composed and set to music. If, you, yeah. if it's done properly and done right yeah. and it mimics well, the original. That is how movie houses did it for so many years. Yeah, that's right. right. But that's an art that we've lost. And to be able yeah. to go back and do that old, in this yeah. day and age is very impressive. Well, that's also how the original Metropolis was of exhibited, course. was yeah. with the live orchestra. So it's almost uh, the closest you can get to it. Uh, the trouble, of course, is that the real version of Metropolis, this is a, more of a film side note, um, the full version of it will, will never really be seen because we've lost footage from it, but we've re-pieced it together from what we've found. But the actual footage lost is actually very minimal these days. I think it's something like 10 to 15 minutes that's missing. Hmm. And, yeah. and, and in a movie like this that is as grand as it is in scope, uh, you could actually do without it and be fine. It still gets the point across. Oh, sure, of course. Yeah. Well, there's a lot you can, I think you could still cut out of that movie and still have not really miss any of the elements of the story, just from what I've seen of the few minutes of it. Um, but otherwise, I mean, you're, the thing I think is really interesting is now when you're talking about dystopian futures, because we're now dealing with a digital, or sorry, digital, sorry, a visual medium, you really now can express the, that point in ways you couldn't do before. I mean, you, you could do it with illustrations, of course, yeah, uh, from pulp novels and from, um, you know, maybe a quick little graphic in the middle of a novel right. but i think this can take it so much further because when you talk about expressionism within the context of art deco you know it's very angular it's very high contrast and there's so much of that if you just look at the poster for metropolis you can see it right with the with the cityscapes you know with these big towering buildings and uh this that really sharp shadow and light it just i, I actually love that aesthetic I don't know why. Probably because of Batman the Animated Series, which drew so heavily from the Art Deco style. But um, it's just an interesting point that when you make that visual and you make that expressionism, which is the exact opposite of romanticism, right. that the world is not what you think it's what it is. It's um, And when you tie that in with a dystopian future, it really just kind of hits the message home in a way that you can't do with just words. Sure. And, you know... In 1927, that was really impressive with the technology they had at the time. It was time. way in a plus the concept, technology, story was so ahead of its time. I don't think it even did that well commercially at the box office. Not in the States, I think. It was huge in Germany. Yeah. Well, that would huge. make sense because it was produced, financed, and created right. in Germany. Right. Yeah. Fritz Lang was famous for that movie. Yeah. But like, it, it really, yeah. it's, it's, it's a movie that now, this day and age, as I view it, stands as the pillars of the sci-fi movie genre as what they are today, like the main influence. Like, a lot of people would say that the design of C-3PO relies heavily and substantially from uh, the uh, robot in Metropolis. Yeah. There's definitely some creative elements that are pulled into that. uh, Yeah, exactly. So I had a really crazy idea, and I thought it would be an awesome uh, plot for a movie. And it's a science fiction story set during the creation of Metropolis. Bear with me for a second. The uh, The premise is that Fritz Lang actually encounters this robot that is, I don't know, either from outer space or travels back through time or something like this. And in opening this dialogue with this robot, he the robot shares these ideas and visions of its future, of its existence. And Fritz is absolutely you know enticed by this and writes his story based on this message that the the android is giving him, the robot's giving yeah. him. Yeah. And the robot then gives him the hints that he needs to be able to actually produce the film. Like, he wants to tell it on the screen, and the robot is like, all right, well, this is something you could do that would make that happen, and this would make that happen. 
And then when he goes to actually film the scene with the robot, what the robot that you're seeing in the movie is, in fact, the actual robot uh, brought in as a prop. Oh, wow. Oh, that's great clever. Yeah. And yeah. then in the end, it's really this robot's story, as told by the robot, but to us, that deters us from the future. Oh, my gosh. That that's be. a great idea. Wouldn't that be fun? That's so great. I was just thinking about wow. this for a second, too, because... What was the year that Fritz Lang was depicting in Metropolis? Because it was supposed to be something like the late ni- late nineties, wasn't it? It sounds about right. Something yeah. like that. I'm going to yeah. have to look this up right now. Can you Hold please? On. Yeah, it's it's going to bother me until I find it. All right, so um, it looks like it's supposed to take place uh, near the end of 2026. Okay, so still in our future. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of what they have thought would be much much future has already come to pass. I mean, we haven't built these mega cities that are that tower into the skies, and we haven't polluted the planet so heavily that we let this whole second class of citizens live on the ground level while all the upper class people live on the top. That's a very linear, pun intended, metaphor yeah. for uh, for global culture. Yeah. By the way, um, Batman Begins Gotham it depicts that actually quite well, quite a bunch as well, without the environmental effects. Uh, True. In terms of the second society lives on the underpinnings the narrows in the exactly. narrows of Gotham, yeah. Well, Leonardo da Vinci came up with the idea a long time before that. How so? He had blueprints, essentially, and designs for cities that were based on this whole idea, where the lower class lived down below and used canals to travel around, and the upper class lived in these kind of high-rise uh, lofts and apartments and had parks way above it. And he had this whole almost like aqueduct-like structure that he had conceptualized and designed that would be the modern city. Now, Eric, you already pulled my leg once during this recording. This is completely real. Are you, all right, okay. It's true. All right, all it's right. It's true. Okay. I'm just saying. Well, to be honest, like, I don't doubt it. Yeah. But yeah, well, he, he did pull he, my he, leg recently. <laughs> yes. I mean, the DaVinci was a problem solver. I imagine he designed that to deal with what he thought would have oh, been a growing population. Oh, uh, yeah, surf uh-huh. community, yeah. He, he yeah. also had a crazy ego, and I can imagine him being like, I want this built. I think it's possible, and if I market it to the upper class people to give me money that they can live on the top and everyone else can live on the bottom, I'm fine with that. I honestly think that was partially the mindset, too. You know, may have been. Absolutely. But once we get into Metropolis, now we really get into a... uh, I mean, 1927, of course, we talked about in the film podcast as a really important year, right? Because that was the year that silent movies became talkies, pretty much, with the jazz singer and Alan Jolson. You ain't seen nothing yet, yeah. Yeah. First line spoken in a in motion picture history. You ain't seen nothing yet. Uh-huh. But no, 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 no. You ain't seen it seems that uh, just in terms of uh, my research for science fiction and film, um, there's a lot of interesting ideas. To be honest, like after the 1910s or so, George Méliès being a very major influence. Now looking back on it, in terms of the voyage to the moon. Right, which we talked about. We talked about Georges Méliès in the film Cimitron Prime episode. Yeah, that's right. Um, and also, Brickmont, uh, you might find this interesting. There actually was a movie made in 1959 called Journey to the Center of the Earth. I, I've seen it. You have seen it. I don't think it does the book justice. Like I said, I don't yeah. think any right, any but version. Folks, we're, worse we're, or worser than the Brendan oh, Fraser. Nothing could be as bad as that. Okay, but folks, we're also missing, of course, the popularity of pulp novels. In the 20s and 30s. Oh, amazing stories. Yeah, and we start to see such characters as, uh, though he's not really science fiction, but Tarzan. For more or less John Carter, of course, who is from the Edgar Rice Burroughs stories. Princess of Mars saga, yeah, Yes, his Barsoom series. Yes. Barsoom is the word that they use for Mars in the, Mm. uh, the the Martians use for Mars in their world. 
Um, and they use Jarsum for Earth. Exactly. Yeah. See, I love that. Of course. They're not going to call it Mars. Mars is a Greek god. They didn't have Greek gods. Why exactly. would they call it Mars? They didn't have Greece either. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Go, and Greece, lightning. <laughs> mind you, Burroughs' concept for how Carter reacts on that world lays heavily the foundation for how they explain Superman's powers when yeah. Superman becomes introduced not too much later in 1938. Yeah, and really, st- it's more environmental than it is anything. Exactly. Right? They explain that pretty pretty well. And yeah. the, the journey of John Carter and the story of Princess of Mars basically echoes uh, Star Wars A New Hope in, in several ways. And in fact, uh, I do believe I mentioned this on the Nerds on Film episode when we covered sci-fi that George Lucas tried to buy the rights to uh, the Barsoom saga and couldn't they just wouldn't do it, and so he had to create his own sweeping saga, hence Star Wars. Which is kind of funny, because I think they're now public domain. I think they are, and uh, Disney released uh, the movie John Carter on uh, the Barsoom, the, the publication of uh, Princess of Mars' 100th birthday as well. But we also start to see with film, serialization taking place. Yeah. Well, there were serials that were done in novels, too. I mean, that's kind of where they did it from, was the whole leaving the audience on a cliffhanger, and then picking it up next in the next issue of these you know, these magazines. But um, we did start to see that with film, and we, of course, start to see other characters come up. And I'm really going fast here, but we start to see other characters like uh, Buck Rogers appear in comic book form. Yep. Um, comic strips like Flash Gordon, of course. The Invisible Man. The Invisible Man. eventually got turned into a movie as well. Sure. And you get to see all these different characters. And we still haven't got to the, gotten to superheroes yet. Yeah. Because superheroes, now, mo- many of them are so... Superman particularly, of course, but um, are so tied to science fiction themes. Um, but even getting, but the, that those, those don't come to the late 30s, just just in the 20 and early th- 20s and early 30s. Right. It, it seems like it was World War II was the catalyst for the creation and birth of superheroes in a time when the world really needed it. Kind of. There were... I it mean, seems like it. That's why I 1935 said, is when you really start to see the first superheroes. Like, the Phantom um, was definitely 35. Um, three years before... Superman 4 before Batman, but he was very clearly secret identity, had a mask, had a costume. The term superhero had not been coined yet because that was actually coined by Superman. Though Marvel and DC both, I think one actually owns the rights to the name, but they just let both, like they, they just acknowledge it's such an important name that you can't not have the other person use it. Wow. So like one publisher lets the other publisher use the name. Oh, kind of a cool little thing. But, um, I hate to do this because you guys are going such a great direction, but can I mention something in relation to the uh, into the uh, amazing stories in that genre of yeah. pulp? No, pulp science. Come, come on, <laughs> come on. There's something that I would like. I request both of you to do, and any of our listeners, is to go and watch an episode of Star Trek: Deep Space Nine. <laughs> <laughs> Go on. Shut up and listen to me. God. Shut up and listen to me. Go if on. it wasn't Egypt, it was going to be Star Trek. Yeah, it has to be one or the other. It's a freaking episode on science fiction. I know we're messing with you, but it was just you funny. Because I'm talking about Star Trek right now. All right, so which episode of Deep Space Nine are you talking about? I think it's probably one of the best episodes of Star Trek that's ever been written. And I think that you guys would definitely appreciate it after the conversation that we've had in this episode. And I okay. think our listeners would find it an interesting tie-in. It's called Far Beyond the Stars. And in the episode, Captain Sisko, right, who's the captain of DS9. Does he, he does he come up with the song the thong song? <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't know why I find that so funny. Please go on. That's okay, because none of our listeners do either. Oh, <laughs> oh I'm just kidding. I'm and sure I'm gone. Somebody else laughed. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, he ends up having the side effect from this 
interaction that he had with this Bajoran religious icon, okay? But what ends up happening is he wakes up and he's in 1920s Earth. And he doesn't have the recollection of him as Captain Sisko. He has the thoughts and memories of this guy named Benny Russell. Mm -hmm. And Benny Russell is an African-American living in the 1920s. But he writes for a science fiction magazine. And he is writing these stories that are essentially his life on Deep Space Nine as Ben Sisko. And wow. he doesn't know where the inspiration's coming from, but he keeps having these flashes and he keeps writing these stories almost obsessively about yeah. this future where everybody gets along and they live on the space station and there is no, you know, racial inequality or sex inequality. And he is writing for this magazine, but not acknowledging publicly that he's an African American. And so his editors are publishing his stuff but everyone just assumes that he's white. And he starts taking issue with it because he goes from being this person who was willing to go with the status quo just so he can get his stuff published, even if it meant you know, degrading himself as a human being, to someone who was standing up for his rights and his civil rights and then mm. making a stink out of it. And it's so interesting because all of the characters from DS9 play a character from the 1920s. Huh. So like Worf Great is a Wizard baseball Oz, yeah. yeah, Worf is a baseball player and Dax is their secretary and uh, uh, the guy who plays Quark is actually their editor. Oh no no, sorry. The guy who plays Odo is their editor. And none of them are in their alien makeup, correct? Nope, none of them are. They're all in their they're all just as they would normally look of, as actors. And Quark actually plays the person who's most sympathetic to him even though he's the most like closed-minded person on the actual show. Hmm. And it's he's just the Ferengi, correct? He's the Ferengi, yeah. yeah. And it's so cool and it's so neat to watch them working in this 1920s office putting together these stories. Uh, and they all have their own little niche and genre that they fall into, but then they fall in love with his future. And it's just, it is one of the greatest episodes ever made. It has a really sad, almost kind of tragic ending to it, but it's so worth watching. So I'm going to okay. appeal to our listeners, if you have Netflix, check it out. It is, hold on a second, let me see if I can find what season it is. I want to say it's like season five or six. Uh, the episode is called Far Beyond the Stars. And it is um, totally worth it. I am currently adding that to my Netflix queue as we speak. While you're doing that, I'm going to throw a name at you guys. And I want to hear if you guys can pick this out. Doc Savage. Why does that sound so familiar? Because he's a pulp comic book character from the 1930s. Oh, not Adam Savage? No. From Mythbusters? Doc Savage. Clark Savage Jr., as his character's name would be. Clark? Notable <laughs> alias name, The Man of Bronze. He must tarnish easily. Uh, his abilities are not super, though he was raised by his father and scientists to be the peak human specimen. His powers include a genius level intellect, uh, so obviously peak physical and mental conditioning, so very Batman-like in the sense that he's got, you know, no fat in his body. Um, a skilled scientist, detective, and martial artist. A photographic memory and a master of disguise. This is essentially Batman without the costume and Superman with, with, all, with all the morals of Superman. Hmm. This guy was invented in 1933 by uh, Lester Dent, Harry, Henry Ralston, and John Nanovic. Wildly popular pulp series. Uh, they even tried making some films in it in the 1970s. Here's what I find fascinating, going back to the cultural perspective of it. This was done in 1933. This is the peak of not the peak this is in the midst of the depression but 33 is when roosevelt had taken office right so there was a wave of optimism right that we could we could actually get through this 
So you have this man who is supposed to be in the early 21st century when he when this takes place. That you know we raise humanity to become its best form possible, right? And he becomes this adventurer, where he goes on and you know saves people and defeats evil villains and savages. You know, like indigenous peoples from other countries. They're not savages. No, but you know, I, I'm just saying using the, the using the vernacular of, of the time. Exactly. Yeah. I just think it's interesting that we start to see this kind of escapism during a time period where really our culture needed it because the rest of the life around it was so dismal. Um, people were so poor that they could at least pay a nickel and get a, this story that would you know envelop them for a short period of time. And it cost the same amount to get a, a comic book as it did to go to a movie. Very true. So I just think it's interesting that now we, we use science fiction at this point in time not just as a means to comment on society but now in a way it's our savior to society because we want that kind of escape from the lives and that's something that we think was continued on to the present because every time we go see a major blockbuster movie we are kind of looking for that sense of, of escape oh absolutely yeah and uh, whether it's a small independent film that has a lot to say about a certain you know class society or whether it's some popcorn film you just turn your brain off of uh, movies are in one way or another uh, uh, like a social commentary science fiction or not in terms of the society that we live in today and what it's represented to what it's represented through a one person or a team of people's like perspectives which yeah. is what the science fiction genre i think excels in yeah and i feel like so something like star trek which i'm going to bring it back to is that vision that gene roddenberry had that was so ideal right it was the, so the optimistic feature yeah and was such a comment on the times and that's why i love that episode that i mentioned about ds9 because it recaptures a lot of what roddenberry was trying to say is, of which i also i here it is season six episode 13 and quick correction before somebody else corrects me it was actually supposed to take place in the 1950s not 1920s I okay. but to my point i think that star trek did something pretty revolutionary you know and it, and it did it right in front of people because now we were moving away from the movies, which you had to kind of venture out to go to. And now we started seeing television bringing these images to us. We did so with radio. Radio continued and became even more popular and continued to be popular in England, but in America kind of died quickly once the TV was introduced yeah. in a large way in the 1950s. Yeah. And so in the 1960s, when Star Trek comes around and there's all these televisions now established in America, here's this opportunity to use sci-fi, really good televised sci-fi, to tell these stories that were to the point and about the time. Uh, I'm re-watching the Star Trek of the original series because the Abram movies came out and it just made me want to watch them all again uh, <laughs> for the umpteenth billionth time. And they are just so chucked full of that social commentary. That's really important, and we definitely need to talk about Star Trek, but I think we also need to talk about a very important precursor that may have driven this need for a superly optimistic view of the future. And that would be 1984. By George Orwell. Oh, sure. We can't do a sci-fi episode and not talk about this, this no, of novel. Course. Right? Because it was published in 1949, just four years after the end of World War II, when we were now on the midst of a Cold War. We were starting to notice a nuclear arms race that was starting to develop. We had officially dropped an atomic bomb twice now. And so we, we on saw... On one nation. On one nation. Still so the only ones to do that. For the first time in history, we have seen... A true weapon of mass destruction. One that I think many people saw right away as having the potential to destroy the world. And more so than that, we saw the direct human 
affliction and ramifications of said weapon. Because we've blown up weapons before that, but to actually see the suffering and aftermath of them right. is even more telling. Plus, Absolutely. we were also talking about the end of the Holocaust, too. So we were talking about you know 10 million people being wiped off the face of the planet. So two very dark, very depressing moments in history. So that can't not influence the literature and the work that's being done from that. Sure. I imagine being in a bombed-out London, looking out every day on the rubble that was once my beautiful city, and thinking to myself of all the... being reminded constantly of all the horrors of the Second World War... There's no way I was going to be able to every single day keep my hopes up. And there were going to be times when I would think, maybe this really is the end of the world. Yeah, and we could obviously devote an entire episode to dystopian. Because we can we could also get into Ray Bradbury if you wanted to as oh, well. Oh, screw that. That's sad. Yeah, that is sad. <laughs> I, but I just wanted to at least mention as a tangent, mention A4, oh, here, here. As, as an absolute need to maybe what may have driven Gene Roddenberry to have said, no, why does the future have to be so bleak? Let's yeah. talk about mankind actually doing better. You know, absolutely. So, all right, please okay. don't hate me, please. And audience members listening, I, I ask for your forgiveness. I have not read 1984. Really? Yeah, neither I have I actually. Really? Seriously, it was it's not been, required it, reading. It's definitely been a few years, but yeah. uh, I read the book. I want to say I was probably 16 or 17 when I read it. Yeah. Uh, I haven't read it a second time, but honestly, the first time was enough for me, and it really stuck with me. And yeah, you, you've seen the movie, right? No. No. And Have you seen the movie? No, no, no. Oh, but, wow, guys. Yeah. And I, I, what I'm saying here is I'm familiar with the concepts and I appreciate its importance. But yeah, it's just been, mostly it's been bad luck is what it's been. I'm pretty sure I have everything that we've talked about today if you guys want to borrow <laughs> it. Although you guys both have iPads. Just, just download them and read them. They're, oh, Very God, true. wow. It, wow. I know. Yeah. I, Please I, do. They're I, amazing. I, you know, I'm going to reread it now, too, because I really want to. Okay. Nice. Yeah. Okay. But no, I, I totally get what you mean, that you have all these really horribly depressing things going on, and then you had all these also socially uplifting things going on, like the Civil Rights Movement. And here we are in the 60s, here's this perfect opportunity to tell a story that can be, here's all this pain and suffering and misery and upheaval that's going on in the world. This is what it's for. There's a reason why this happened. We suffer because it makes us stronger. And if we can survive it, if we can pull ourselves together we can have a future that's worth living. Right. And that's what I love about Roddenberry's message. And that's why I'm kind of pissed off with the current Star Trek movies. Even though they are super fun and delightful action movies, that fundamental, that you, when you just stop and you think about what we just said, what we just talked about, that heart and soul of Gene Roddenberry... It's implied in the new Star Trek movies. It's not so. discussed. I don't think so. I think it's implied. I think it's implied because of the subject matter and because it's already been in existence with all the other Star Trek that's out there. But I don't think it's, it's I th- present. Oh, I I, uh, I, would I don't say, want to get into this tangent. I, I, I for would argue that with the <laughs> with it's done told much more through aesthetics, and well, some people will say, well, the movie is even look grittier and darker. So how can you make that argument? Well, look at the amount of order that there is on the ships in the city and all of that. Just at council world. meetings, yeah, yeah. The amount of order that is visually there and socially behaved upon, right? In there, it does kind of team of this utopian society that's having problems but is nevertheless a peaceful world a peaceful yeah. world that up until john harrison <laughs> but star trek was never just about putting an african-american a japanese person a russian person uh an alien who was half human and a scottish man and just putting them together in a room they could have just done that and it would have been camping and been like what's the point you're not telling us an actual message right instead they build these characters 
not just with a sense of equality, but with a message that they deliver. And they delivered more of a message about the way that they interacted with the alien species that they encountered than they did with the way they interacted with each other. And I think that was yeah, the that's, powerful message yeah, that's missing from the new Star Treks. In that respect, I agree with you. Absolutely. Okay. Brian? No, I'm just, I'm just I'm taking it all in. Either I've agree seen... with me or we'll flip this table. <laughs> my, my, <laughs> you, you know me, guys. You know I'm not a hardcore Trekkie. My experience is mostly with TNG, which still, you know, the next generation does definitely talk about everything you're talking about. Oh, I, they expanded on some really interesting issues. I mean, yeah. Riker going off and deforming a relationship with a species that essentially polices gender. And there is no true gender. And when one of those individuals wants to exhibit a gender and embrace it, here is Riker going and embracing it with, quote unquote, her, this person who identifies herself as a her. And it's such an interesting social parallel to gender identity within our own society. It's almost the exact opposite, right? We have very clear genders that we assign to ourselves. We have male and we have female. Right. Um, and aside from all political views, right, I'm just talking about the, the psychology and bi biology of individuals. There are people out there who identify themselves as being a gender different from what they are biologically born well, with. I took a sociological class on human sexuality about eight years ago amidst my college during my college degree and they define there's a difference sex is biological right it is what you physically are are you physically male or is it physically female gender is the psychological state of being male right or female so um and there are those who you know they were not biologically born one way but they are of a mindset another way don't right. we call that asexual no. no, asexual no. is actually, there are people, uh, they're extremely rare, but there are people actually who are born asexual. Okay. Right. Yeah. Um, but the fact that Next Gen yeah. explored subjects like this, which in the early 90s was actually pretty risque for television, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, they did an episode on rape, too. Yeah. But it was, meant, it was all, of course, in the mind. Brilliantly done, by the way. I know. So yeah. well done. But, you know, that's the message of Star Trek that I love that permeates through all the different series. And I think the example that I gave with uh, DS9 was one of their most powerful episodes, right? Right. Uh, Voyager, well, I'm sure there was a message in there somewhere. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, they had some episodes that definitely touched on certain issues. But... So then let's talk about, if we're going to talk about Star Trek, we can't, as we've established, we are neutral. We are Switzerland. Yeah. We yes. cannot talk about Star Trek without talking about the other kind. Star Wars, right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And whereas you've got the utopian future of Roddenberry, you have technically the distant past, literally physically distant and past of Star Wars. Yeah. And the the galaxy that encompasses Star Wars is one that is heavily borrowed from, you know, in what Joseph Campbell would call these other mythical elements, right? You see lots of strong elements of Edgar Rice Burroughs and the Barsoom series. You see a lot of these stories from India that you're talking about mm -hmm. uh, finding their their way in there. And yet you also have the what Joseph Campbell calls the hero's journey, right? The journey of Luke Skywalker into finding his destiny. Or if you talk about it, episodes one through six, it's the journey of Darth Vader. Yes. Which in many ways is the journey of Luke Skywalker. Yeah. But again, talking about, yeah. talking about how it reflects our social mindset. I mean, Lucas knew what he was doing. He knew he was retelling these stories when he was crafting the original Star Wars scripts. But at the same time, he uses technology, uh, even though it's supposed to be past technology from a galaxy a long far, time far ago away. In a galaxy far, far away. He uses futuristic technology, and yet it's the first time we start to see technology that is clunky, 
right? Like you see the the Millennium Falcon, and what is the first thing Luke says? What a piece, piece of, of junk! junk. <laughs> exactly. Hey, can do the Kelsey Ring in twelve parsecs, but um, <laughs> and then you see this super mechanized, superior empire, right? They are they dominate the galaxy with their technology, with their superior warfare, and with a planet that can kill other planets, but it's not a planet. It's, a it's small not moon. a moon, <laughs> right? It's a space station. Exactly, it's too right. big to be a space station. So you're, you're talking really about this metaphor for an arms race, right? Yeah. You know, which was totally a parallel for the Cold War, if you think about oh, it. Oh, undoubtedly. Yeah. Um, I don't know if Lucas was intending that, but I mean, that's the image that, that we get, right? Yeah, yeah. And you've got the rebels, who are these small, underarmed, but highly spirited and highly ideological uh, people who eventually learn to conquer over them, right? And right. regain what is right they for theirs. They represent the utopian society for the galaxy, whereas you have the intergalactic yeah. empire that is more of a dictatorship by force and by threat of force. But yet, the interesting thing is that the emperor was trying to create peace, and he did establish peace, but he did it through force. Right. Where instead of people choosing peace. if you All right, so yes, if you take the prequels into canon of Star Wars, yes, he wanted to create, quote-unquote, peace. But that peace was tossed to the wayside when he wanted to become in complete power and control. It really yeah. is talking about fascism. Yeah. And it's, and it's talking about paralleling, yeah. Yeah, paralleling what happened in Nazi Germany. And that here you have a people who were seeking some sort of strong leadership, found it, but then gave all the power possible and were transfixed and... You know, put under a spell, if you will, yeah. by promises of glory, uh, and were willing to do the most horrible and terrible things on this promise of glory because here was this person who seemed to be actionable enough to do it, yeah. and here's this this senator or this uh, emperor Palpatine who disbands the Senate, and in the first movie in the New Hope, that that's yeah. very quick. They just mention it very briefly, very briefly, absolutely. But it's enough for us to conjure up this idea of Hitler going ahead and. and getting rid of all government. you know government and making himself the yeah. leader yeah and then like you know to your point this arms race that's going on developing these terrible weapons putting people through terrible things like slavery and and you know causing them to to suffer and and fear this empire yeah. that's that's a perfect yeah. parallel to so much that was so going on. so many messages that go through this movie first of all you have the danger of of militarization You've also got the power of redemption, right? Because Darth Vader is the one who... Sorry, spoiler, but I mean, if you haven't seen Star Wars... Why I, I'm are you listening to this you. podcast? <laughs> we have a couple of listeners who have not seen Star Wars. I know them really? personally. Yes. Okay, then please listen Kyla to the Kyla Prince podcast. is one of them, actually. <gasps> She's never seen Star Wars. Kyla! Kyla, I just outed you. I'm so sorry. but Kyla, turn off. Fast forward about 15, 20 seconds. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so you've got that. You've also got, though, think about this. The key to defeating evil is not through mechanization but through spirituality. Because who ends up winning? Hence the Force. The Jedis end up winning. And they're, they have a little bit of technology, mm. but they're more... And they always say the Jedi have... I mean, they have, you know, a blaster maybe, or mostly the lightsaber, but their big weapon is the Force, right? And... A Force is what gives a Jedi you, his power. Exactly. It's an energy field that surrounds and pen, us, and penetrates, penetrates us, and binds the universe together. Something like that. That was awesome. Yeah, thank you. Well done. <laughs> it, it, that's almost verbatim. Almost. I know I botched Vader it a little. Vader was seduced by the dark, dark side, side of the falls. And they offer a free donuts. <laughs> no, it's cookies. Was it cookies? Come to the dark side. We have cookies. Oh, right. <laughs> I thought it was donuts. Uh, of course. I know, right? Who knew? Yeah. But... <laughs> 
But, you know, if you look at just the original trilogy, yes, I could see that whole parallel to Nazi Germany. Which is the reason why the soldiers are called stormtroopers. Of course. Just yeah. putting and why, it out there. And mm-hmm. why, the, why the Imperial officers have a very German influence, to, like with the high leather boots and the, oh, the, the costume whole, design. The costumes themselves could have yeah. been pulled from the Third Reich. Completely yeah. and utterly, yet... Everyone that's evil is British. Still, still space. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bunch of people every goes, oh, I, oh, 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 oh. Lord, Lord Vader, it's the rebels, sir. <laughs> They're here. My God, man. <laughs> Do they want tea? <laughs> I think they have to something more than that, sir. Don't know what it is, but they brought a flag. <laughs> that's dash cunning of them. Um, <laughs> Eddie oh, Izzard. Eddie Izzard. Oh, oh my, goodness. my gosh. But I think the expanded universe of Star Wars goes much deeper. Because if you look at what they've written as for the past and what they've written for the future, there have been multiple empires, not just the Galactic Empire. There's been the Sith Empire of right. the past and then with the Knights of the Old Republic. And, and for those that are the diehard Star Wars fans like I am, uh, the recent Clone Wars uh, series, which is bridging the gaps between Episode 2 and Episode 3 of Star Wars, um, they actually have Anakin visit the pillars the entities and beings that balance the Force. And it's a brother and sister. And uh, the brother, spoiler alert, (laughs) I'm being serious, and it's awesome. It is an incredible series, yeah. Well, I was going to... Well, what I'm getting to it, what I'm getting to is how um, the brother reveals that the universe exists in cycles that it's thank you yeah, that's what i was gonna get to it's oh it's that's never, never been done in science fiction i know right it, it's never one constant it always has a resurgence of uh, something that has happened whether it's eons ago or hundreds yeah. of years ago that type of thing so in other words the sith end up taking power and then the jedi take power and the sith and then that yin and yang that exactly and flow that in and of itself light and dark is the balance of the force absolutely so Anakin did bring balance to the Force, but he brought it by becoming dark because the world had been dominated by too much light. And then and Luke by restores kids. balance. <laughs> and by having kids, yeah. And by having kids. His kids are really the true balance to the Force, right? Yeah, because what yeah, you're talking about is brother sister prophecy, relationship. The prophecy of the one who will truly bring balance to the Force. You can make the argument that it's Darth Vader. You can also make the argument that it's Luke Skywalker. If you look at the movies as six parts, it's Darth Vader. If you look at the original trilo- trilogy alone, it's Luke Skywalker. But really, what you're looking at is Darth Vader's influence in the universe, which is him having children who are very Force-sensitive, Luke and Leia, and they bring about, really, the balance, which he helped facilitate. And in the end, he really aids his son in bringing that balance. That's right. He's playing that role along with his son, so the two of them are really together making that yeah. possible. And if it wasn't for Leia who was on the other side of it all, the other side of the battle, yeah. then that aspect of it would have never happened. Well, so they're definitely playing that balancing role. Yeah. There's also a theme of breaking tradition in the Star Wars universe because up until New Hope, there was a strict rule where the being, to be a Jedi was very monk-like. You know, you literally, you had to basically be celibate. Attachment well, And you were chosen forbidden. at birth, too. Exactly. So this lifelong servitude without romantic attachment. And yet, Anakin is the first one to... One of the first major ones. There was a few exceptions to the rules they've talked yeah. about, but Anakin was the first one to break that code, right, and secretly marry and become dark. In the fan fiction, of course. Well, no, that's an episode in, in two. In the prequels. He secretly marries... Oh, Anakin, I'm sorry. Think, I'm thinking of Luke, excuse me. No, yes. Luke, Luke marries quite openly, right. but that's because when Luke reestablished the Jedi Order, he Inclu- agreed to say, well, there are certain things that we knew were, were mistakes. Yeah. And 
Anakin actually essentially establishes the first Jedi dynasty because you have now a family of Force sensitives who have all become Jedi's. Yeah, at that you know, point, I find it so interesting because obviously that was way thought up after the the first three movies were made because the original three the original movies, three because yeah. yeah. the first one he's talking about your father was a Jedi Knight. He's like, really. That's so awesome. Instead of saying, holy crap, he was a Jedi Knight? I thought they weren't allowed to have sex and be married. You know, I mean... It, holy crap, yeah. I yeah. never took that into consideration. Yeah. He's like, that's so, true. wait a minute, he broke all the rules so that I could exist? I mean, that would have been like a whole other thing that he would have had to go off on. And then all of a sudden, Lucas, when he brings back, you know, with the, new, with the, the Phantom Menace, the Phantom Opera, uh, he, uh, he... Darth Maul <laughs> is here inside the hangar bay. <laughs> But Sorry, I butchered that. He comes up with this whole concept of celibacy among the Jedi Order and makes yeah. them, like you're saying, monk-like. And I feel like that was just a bad decision. Well, well Lucas the same time, approves all changes made to the expanded universe as well. So, I mean, he, yeah. he eventually, basically, he, ret- he retconned it, is what he did. Right. Oh, by the way, um, if you guys remember the throwaway line in The Phantom Menace, Anakin Skywalker is, like, Jesus Christ gone wrong because... Well, no, not Jesus Christ. Well... A little bit, because there was no father. Shmi Skywalker gave birth and cannot explain what happened. Yet there in is episode a fan three, for that. Yet in episode three, it's Darth Plagueis, uh, who had the ability to create life out of the Force, may have somehow transmitted that across the universe into Shmi Skywalker, thus creating Anakin Skywalker. Was it Plagueis or was it Palpatine? Dum, dum, dum! That is a great fan because theory. He said I'd love to discuss shared, that. Because Plagueis said he shared everything he knew. Yep. Palpatine was unable to figure out how to control death. Yeah, and um, in this whole story that Palpatine goes on to, which is one of the best parts of Episode 3, is that he talks about Darth Plagueis and his apprentice. He never reveals the name of the apprentice, but if you look at Ian McDermott's face, you can, you tell you it was can him. totally tell that it was Palpatine. Yeah. And yeah. actually, there was a planned Darth Plagueis novel that was going to fully explain that Palpatine was, in fact, Plagueis' apprentice, but they canceled it. And he was the only, and Plagueis was the only alien Sith Lord next to, if you count well, Darth Maul, but the only non-humanoid alien Sith Lord. Okay, yes, uh, yeah, 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 that's right. Anyway, the, that's an important point, too, because there's a theme of racism, because uh, Palpatine was considered an, a, a very adamant speciesist. He would not let non-humanoid aliens have any level of power in the Empire. Yeah, that's right. You know, the closest he ever got was Grand Admiral Thrawn, who was humanoid, but he was blue-skinned. Mm. Yeah. And even then, that was considered a very vast yeah, exception. He was the only exception. Exactly. In the expanded so, universe. You've yeah. got, knowing that you have a, a Darth by the name of a Plagueis, you got to know he's bad news. <laughs> I mean, if you're named Plagueis... If you're Hi, named, guys! My name is Darth Plagueis. If you're named, like, Antibioticus, then clearly yeah. you're going to be a Jedi. Well, Darth Plagueis, is, he was the apprentice of, of Darth Streptococcus. <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs> Oh, that's great! <laughs> um, so how do you want to wrap this up, guys? So, alright, so we covered two of the biggest sci-fi genres in modern day time. Now, I mean, there are dozens of other genres that I wish we could cover, but we have reached so much and covered so much ground in terms of the origins that we can discern of science fiction leading up to today heavy influences, um, and a strong focus on the two major spec- the spectrums of science fiction, I mean, let's Star just, Trek and Star Wars. L- let's just say it. We've done this, what, two episodes now. We have barely scratched the surface. Barely. And there are so many people who are going to who are gonna listen to this. And, they're and gonna, be 
in a rage that we missed a, another key story. Yeah. Probably. But you know what? Don't be people. And a key subject. That's yeah. not what we were doing here. What we were doing was looking at science fiction, very broad spectrum, looking at a few of its key and pivotal changes that were made. Not all of them, because there were so many that we couldn't cover. And you know, we could do an entire podcast just dedicated to it, which there are many that already exist out there. Absolutely. Yeah. We just wanted to give you an understanding of it from a broad spectrum yeah. perspective. Because not everybody does enjoy science fiction or have found what they like about science fiction. Right. So hopefully this gave you as listeners some suggestions and ideas. I hope that it encouraged you to look back at some of its earlier proto-science fiction origins and its influences on much later stories and encourage you to look at its birth and some of those great classics like uh, Frankenstein and many other, Verne and uh, Wells. Wells. Yeah. Uh, go back, read those if you haven't. You guys need to go watch that Star Trek episode I told you about and read 1984. That's right. Yeah, we do. Uh, and watch Metropolis. And watch, watch Metropolis. Metropolis all Sober. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sober. But I think what we can, what we've now agreed on, because we from our heated debate before, is we all agree that I think what science fiction now is, is a very simple story, right? Of a character who uses natural means to accomplish fantastical ends. I think we all can agree with that. I say, I, I go beyond just character. I would say... The story, the yeah. story that yeah. accomplishes fantastic. telling a, a yeah. fantastical adventure, yeah, through natural means, yeah, and, and shows a willingness to dream and grow beyond, absolutely, yeah. yeah, and in so doing that, we also have it reflect upon its time period and its its thinking, its worldview, right, yeah, absolutely, and thus making it another testament in the Quite. notes on history. Well done, sir. Yes, yeah. well done indeed. I, I'm not going to call this homework, but for those that... I, I think there's one movie that comes to mind that best personifies what we just described science fiction as. Uh, District 9 came out a couple of years ago. Such a great movie. Incredible movie that has... Wonderful an, an, film. An incredible story that has science, science fiction tropes, but it's to serve the purpose of telling a story that's happening now. Yeah. The aliens aren't involved... But that's the whole point. Yeah. Well done, sir. Well said. Yes. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this has been fantastic. Thank you for joining us as This is always. one of our best episodes, I think. Oh, two-parter. Had yeah. to be. Yeah. It was amazing. Had to be. No question. Uh, awesome. Soon to be a 12-parter. <laughs> as our 12-part part series <laughs> on <laughs> science fiction. Not unlike Star Wars. Um, yeah. <laughs> but thank you all so much for listening. Uh, as always, you can find Nerdonomy on the interwebs at nerdonomy.com, where you can check out our awesome blog, give us listener feedback, maybe even click on that little donation button and help us get that air conditioner. Yeah. And if you want to subscribe to our podcasts, uh, you can do that through both the iTunes Store and Stitcher Radio, of course. And when it comes to contacting us directly, uh, we all have uh, our wonderful email system uh, that has been around for uh, 20 years or so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, email. <laughs> yeah. You're almost as old as I am. Um, <laughs> you can reach me uh, at Kevin at nerdonomy.com. You can reach me through my email through the Nerds page but or on Twitter at Brian Moriarty. And you can reach me at TheBrickmont on Twitter or TheBrickmont at nerdonomy.com if you want to email me directly. Bingo. And, of course, follow us on our general Twitter account at Nerdonomy. And on our awesome Facebook page. Huzzah. Huzzah. That's a lot of things for these people to do. We well, have just, so just many do ways. It. Yeah, we have so many ways of communication. Well, some people are going to be like, "I have too many choices. I don't want to choose any of them. <laughs> boom, choose boom, one of them. Boom, boom, yeah. Just pick one. Burr. Just no, roll a dice if you need to. Seriously. Yeah. yeah. Then you have to do with signing which options, which number, and, <laughs> and then this. Brian, Brian, 
Bring then it. you're creating. Uh, you're Focus. pulling a community. You're what creating you ultimate about, dimensions. <laughs> yeah, no more dimensions, please. We have enough to deal with on our own. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Kevin, a pleasure to have you back on. It was a pleasure to be part of this episode. And we'll see you at the Nerds on Film podcast next. Indeed. Um, folks, we hope you've enjoyed. Uh, oh, oh, we forgot one final bit. We have to give our little, a little spiel here. We love producing the content for you on our podcasts. Um, it has been done very laboriously through our own dime. Yeah. If you could find it in your heart to give us any form of money to help continue to support this endeavor that you're hearing or baked goods for that matter um we we have lots <laughs> of plans that we would like to do with neuronomy first of all we have this lovely nerd cave that eric has extremely generously yeah to to convert and to uh paint and we've decorated it now it's our becoming our new home and it looks great but it needs a little more work primarily a functionary air conditioner because yes. it's going to get very hot and, and there's no uh think of sarah heating system. just think of sarah yeah we'll have to take lots of breaks and, and at the same time there's no microwave for our hot not only that but also overheating <laughs> the audio equipment we don't want to deal yeah. with that either that's true um we, you know, we could afford to get another computer, a dedicated computer, because we use my laptop currently to record. And we love and using We my use laptop. other laptops as well. Exactly. Yeah. Um, a dedicated computer. We also are looking to, in the very near future, maybe this is premature, but to start to develop video content. Video content requires more equipment, more production value. And we, will, we would love to make that happen, and we'll be as creative as we can to do it. But if we have a little extra coin to do it, it'll be even better. So we'll take any amount, $50,000... 2.5 million. Yeah, pretty much anything. Zimbabwean dollars, of course. Zimbabwean <laughs> dollars. <laughs> so four cents. Uh, <laughs> yeah, anything that you can donate uh, would be very helpful. If everyone listening gave us a dollar, we would be able to do quite a bit that we just mentioned. Absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah. um, you can do that through our, just above our listener feedback page on nerdonomy.com. There's also the donate with PayPal. Huzzah. So if you can, please, if you find it in your heart and in your wallet, to give us a little bit of support, we would be more than appreciative. And we will also give you a shout-out on the podcast. Uh, we will even give you, I'll say this, we will give, give, give you a customized shout-out on the podcast. I don't so even you know send, what that means, but I'm excited about it. Yeah, well, you have the ability to give us a little message when you do your donation. So you tell me how, how you would like us to shout you out, and we will produce it to the nth degree. Whether okay? that involves Kermit the Frog... Uh, Fozzie the Bear, yeah. Animal. Elaborate sound effects. Elaborate sound effects. Please just make sure that we have our clothing on. That's all I'm asking. <laughs> I agree with that. No nudity. Yeah. Thank God. Yeah. Ain't no one got time for that. <laughs> Ain't nobody got time for that. Um, all right, folks. Well, okay, thank so you very much. And uh, check us out, out next time. Same nerd time, same nerd channel. Nerdonomy.com. Huzzah!